this morning we have a very fun special guest speaker and I'm, we're hoping that he, it, it becomes a regular thing for him not just a one-time shot actually he's not a guest he's actually a member of our church anthony where are you andrew no i want to where i want to know where anthony is no where's andrew thank you andrew you stand up this is andrew wong Yay! And, you know, he's part of um, our community group. And so when we ask questions and he and Nikki answer, we're just like, okay, let's back up. Let's leave. <laughs> it's really good stuff. Really good stuff. We just really depth and hunger for God. And so I'm really excited. We're very excited by having this opportunity for him to just share with us. He's had lots of opportunity to speak and teach. So he's not a newbie in that way, but he's newbie for us. So... Would you please come forward? Let's give him a big hand. Yeah. I'm going to just use the last, oh, actually. Oh, yeah, nice. The last. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Hello? Can you hear me? Great. Well, I appreciate that introduction, Clara. I was going to introduce myself and, and make it very clear that I'm not a part of the youth group, um, that I, I am in the marriage enrichment community group. But thank you, Clara. You beat me to it. Um, yeah, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew, um, and uh, my fiance Nikki, and I, we attend the church. And so I'm really excited for this opportunity. Um, and I'm just really excited to go to a church that empowers its lay people to, to kind of be a part of what God's doing. That's exciting. Um, that being said, if you have any critical feedback, feel free to refer that to Clara Marinville. That's C-L-A-R-A. Just kidding. Um, well, today we're going to continue through our series on uh, the good and beautiful life. Uh, if you're visiting or if maybe you just forgot, the past several weeks we've been interacting with Jesus' teaching on the Sermon in the Mount, or rather in the Sermon on the Mount, um, and the radically different life that he's inviting us to through that. Already through the Sermon, Jesus has challenged our thinking about sexuality, about anger, about how we relate to others, among other things. Um, and this week, I think Jesus' teaching will meet us in an especially significant way. That's because this section of the sermon, uh, Jesus is helping us to rethink how we practice our righteousness. Um, by practicing our righteousness, I mean the actions and lifestyle we choose to relate to God and others, as he intended. As a community of faith that's trying to um, connect to God, to one another, and to our community. This is especially significant for us. Um, so yeah, let me just uh, let me pray for us to get started. Father God, we thank you um, that you have revealed yourself to us. Uh, we thank you that you um, you created this world um, and you have been in pursuit of it. And Father God, we thank you for the fullness of your revelation in Christ Jesus. We thank you um, that there came a point when messengers were no longer enough and you yourself came. And so God, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount and for the truth that um, is in it. God, the truth that has shaped the church and the world for thousands of years. God, a new way of living, a new way of relating to you, a new way of relating to others. And so God, we thank you that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, that it reigns forever, and we thank you that, um, yeah, that there are no walls to keep intruders out of your kingdom, that it's a free invitation to all. Um, God, would you come and would you, um, yeah, just pour out your spirit here in this place, God? I pray that in the ways um, that, that we still have those outside kingdom hearts and those outside kingdom tendencies and stories that dictate our lives, um, God, that you would reveal those and you'd liberate us from those this, this morning. Um, even in just in a small way. And Lord God, we pray. Um, yes, God, we pray that we would live more fully in your kingdom. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So yeah, as I, as I said, right, we've been interacting a lot with the kingdom of God through, through a book called The Good and Beautiful God and really through the Sermon on the Mount that the text goes through. Um, as a part of that, um, we've been interacting with what it means to be inside of the kingdom and outside of the kingdom. We've talked sort of about the ruined life sort of the good and beautiful life. Um, and today, we're going to continue interacting with that through this text. Um, Jesus really lays out what righteousness looks like for two different communities of people. 
He, he lays out what acts of righteousness look like for those within the kingdom, those who have put themselves under Jesus' reign, and those still outside of the kingdom. Um, and so let's read our text just to get started here. So if you could pull that up on the slide for me. Um, our text is Matthew 6, um, verses 1 through 18. And Jesus says, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Amen. Jesus begins his message with a warning. Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' warning rests on the idea that his disciples, people within the kingdom of God, have a fundamentally different identity than those outside of the kingdom of God. In verse 5, he says again, you are not to be like the hypocrites. And in verse 8, speaking of the Gentiles, he says, do not be like them. This warning of how not to practice righteousness seems simple enough. I imagine it would have been easy for the disciples to hear Jesus' warning and not feel too impacted. After all, not blowing trumpets when giving alms to the poor isn't really a feat. It's not really a challenging thing not to do that. For our community, I think it is also easy to just gloss over this message. Many of us could probably paraphrase this text and its supposed prohibitions from memory, right? Especially if you spent some time in the church. I bet you could do that. Um, And after all, how hard could it be not to make a spectacle of yourself? And yet Jesus says, beware, beware. He offers a sincere warning. Now, when he warns that we are not to practice our righteousness before people to be noticed by them, he is actually adding depth to an earlier teaching he gave in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is not inviting people into a transforming relationship with himself um, so they can simply carry on as usual. Um, He's not asking people to hide when the kingdom comes in power into their lives. Our transformation is also intended to lead to those outside the kingdom of God seeing um, the goodness of the Father, ultimately leading them into a relationship with the Father. So Jesus' warning in verse 1 is not beware of practicing your righteousness in public because it's really best expressed as a private devotion in morning quiet times or maybe at family holidays. Instead, he's saying um, beware of deceiving yourself by letting your good deeds be evident to others so that you may be noticed by them, not so that they might meet their loving Father. Jesus is ultimately asking us to beware of our our motives, our intentions, 
He's asking us to be aware of what our end is. Suddenly, this warning seems far more important because it goes beyond the simple legalism of, am I doing the right thing in the right place the right amount of times? It goes beyond that to the question of, am I practicing true righteousness? Righteousness that flows outward from knowing and loving the Father and flows into the thirsty lives of those who have not yet entered his kingdom. This is about our hearts. Yes, so Jesus warns for good reason, because it is completely possible for two people with two different heart motives, with two different ends in mind, to appear strangely similar in the righteousness they practice. I believe Jesus offers this warning so passionately because he loves us and wants us to flourish. Um, After all, that's why we were created. And so it must be the saddest of all ironies that we would appear to others and maybe even to ourselves to be deeply in love with God, deeply about his purposes, deeply in pursuit of him, only to actually be living for the love of another. When we pursue a love other than that love of the Father, it is as if we are still living outside of the kingdom of God. Outside of the kingdom of God, we need to live by old rules and old thinking. Outside of the kingdom, we choose to live as our own king, as our own provider, as our own hope. And as we probably have all found, or maybe you haven't found that yet, but you might in time, this sort of life is always defined by scarcity. It's always defined by self-centeredness. It's always defined by pursuit. Already we've talked about the path to the ruined life. We've talked about what it means to live life as you want it, when you want it, how you want it, as opposed to how God wants it. Um, This is nothing more than when we choose our own kingship over 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 that of Christ Jesus. And so I think it is for good reason and no exaggeration that Jesus offers us warning. He wants to lead us in another way. And, um, and while I think a lot of it is God wants to spare us harm, he wants to spare us suffering and the destruction that sin causes, I think Jesus also wants to lead us in the way um, that kind of invites us into all the Father has for us. There's an abundance for us. Because verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Part of Jesus' warning is missing out on this reward. Now that Jesus has explained how deceptive our righteousness can be, um, it's easy to create a new legalism to guide our lives by. Um, After all, we don't want to be people of the ruined life. And so um, we create rules and boundaries and guidelines, and we try and stick to these to avoid the ruined life. Um, But when we fear our false righteousness to an extreme, we can actually paralyze ourselves from knowing and being used by God. Um, Let me give you an example. All of... All of us here in this church community are tremendously gifted by God. Right? That's what scripture tells us, and that's also what we see revealed here. We're all gifted in tremendously different ways. God has given us amazing gifts because he wants us to join in his work of redemption. Right? God has made some of us teachers so that we can teach God's truth. He's made some of us administrators so that we can help kind of organize and lead the church in that way. He's made some of us evangelists so that we can declare God's good story to those who haven't yet heard it. And then there are lots of other kind of less tangible gifts. Um, Hospitality sometimes is considered less tangible, but that's a tremendous one. And God has gifted us tremendously so that we can join in his work of restoration. Um, But he doesn't want us just for our utility. We're not just tools to him. He also loves seeing us do what we love to do, what we were created for. And so a beautiful description of God's calling in our lives is that where the world's deep need meets, our deep gladness, this is our vocation, In other words, where we see the deepest need in the world, the the greatest need for God, where we passionately want to fill that, this is where we're most satisfied. Um, God wants us to be satisfied in his work and the gifts he's given us. But many of us fear using our gifts for the praise and pleasure of the Father and our own gladness. Our deep fear is that using our gifts will only result in a puffed-up ego instead of people praising the Father. And so we bury the gifts and the passions the Father has breathed into us. Instead of protecting our hearts from false righteousness, we just become unfulfilled and unsure of our identity since we can't be the people that the Father made us to be. I think this is as great a tragedy as false righteousness in every single way. Both of these situations are false. Um, They're dishonest. They result in the Father not being given praise um, and those who need to see his goodness Um, and his tangible kingdom, they miss it. Um, I hope that as we go through this text today, 
um, God will meet us and that he'll show us a better way forward than false righteousness or harsh legalism. There's a better way forward than both of those. Um, and so I'm going to work us through the text by looking at several opposing values, several opposing ways of relating to God um, and practicing righteousness. And these conflicting values represent spiritual life for those outside of the kingdom and inside the kingdom. Um, they are performance versus intimacy, ritual versus trust, and self-focus versus mercy. So you can see them up there. First, we'll look at the value for performance. Um, in this text, Jesus talks about righteousness um, through the three main religious actions of Jewish culture. So almsgiving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. Um, in first century Jewish culture, there was actually a really well-established welfare system through the temple. Um, giving to the poor was not philanthropic, and it wasn't nice. It was a spiritual duty. Um, devout Jewish people would give to the temple system, and then the temple would redistribute that money to poor, um, poor people within the Jewish community. Um, prayer. Um, within the Jewish community, um, days of prayer were very significant. Um, very devout Jews would probably pray twice a week. Um, or excuse me, that was fasting. But very devout Jews would also go through different motions of prayer throughout the day, different times of prayer and seasons of prayer. In terms of fasting, very devout Jews would fast twice, twice a week, in addition to the holidays like Yom Kippur, the day of repentance. And so taken together, um, these acts of righteousness represent um, our generosity and how we relate to the most vulnerable of society, how we communicate with God and receive from him, as well as how we repent of sin and seek God. Clearly, these three actions form a substantial core of how to live righteously. Water break. And in this text, there's one community that pretty unashamedly embraces all three of these righteous acts. They're referred to as the hypocrites in this text. Um, because they're engaging in sort of thoroughly uh, Jewish religious behavior, it's, it's safe to say that they are Jewish. Um, and, um, and given Jesus' further teaching in Matthew and the way he uses the word hypocrites, um, we could probably use the word Pharisee synonymously with hypocrites in this text. But since Jesus says hypocrites, we will continue to use the word hypocrite. While the hypocrites fulfill this, righteous, uh, this core of righteous action, Jesus explains that for each act of their piety, um, it's actually just another symptom of their desire to be seen by people. In verse 2, Jesus says, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Verse 16 explains that they put on a gloomy face while they are fasting so that they might be noticed by men. And in verse 5, Jesus explains the motivation of this community. He says, for they love to stand. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. It's curious because the only time that the word love is actually used in this text is verse 5 to describe what the hypocrites love most. It's obvious where the hearts of the hypocrites lie. They want more badly than anything else to be recognized as righteous people by those around them. And this is their sole desire because of the reward they receive. For each of the righteous acts the hypocrites perform, Jesus declares they receive a reward from those who see their behavior. Um, and so this is interesting, right? This is the stuff of religious sociology, this idea of sort of transaction, the idea kind of of community dynamics. When I studied religion in college, I went to secular schools, and so religion was obviously like a secular study there. They talked a lot about power dynamics. They talked a lot about sort of social capital, about values and stuff like that. This is exactly what they're talking about, right? Um, but this isn't just some sort of strange religious phenomenon. Um, I think that actually this sort of transactional living, this sort of this for that or quid pro quo, Quo living is actually how we live outside of the kingdom of God. Um, sadly, I think this is actually how we live within the kingdom of God, too. Um, and it makes me think of my first job. When I had just graduated college, I needed a job to move back to San Antonio um, because I wanted to date Nikki. So <laughs> I needed to find a job badly. And, um, and so I did. Where there's a will, there's a way. And um, I found a job at a small athletic company. And um, I hadn't studied business or anything like that. I wasn't interested in it at all, but it was a job. It paid the bills and the student loans. And uh, in my office, we had a break room, and there was a big quote board that hung on the wall. And everybody from the owners of the company all the way down to the guys that worked on the floor could put up a, like a three-by-five card that had a quote on it. And sometimes they were silly. Sometimes they were motivational. 
Um, but one of my managers was named John, and, and his quote said this, and I'll probably never forget it because I remembered it just from memory as I was writing this talk. His quote said, No one ever sees what you did yesterday. They only see what you are doing today. This was my manager. Um, and the more time I spent with John, the more time I spent with him as my boss, the more I realized how true that quote reflected his, his life narrative, his story, what he believed in. John's narrative informed him that if he was to increase profits and get more productivity out of his staff, he would be more valuable to the company and more praised by the ownership. He also, probably correctly so, assumed that he would be paid more, um, and this would be further proof of his importance and value. Um, John probably believed that if he grew wealthy and successful enough, other people would even envy him and want a life like his. This would be the greatest of all affirmations, and he would be able to say with confidence that he was finally important, finally valuable. It's an easy thing to judge or pity John, uh, but I don't think we should skip too quickly over his narrative or the narrative of the Pharisees or hypocrites. I think they both ask the same question 2,000 years later. Am I really valuable and accepted apart from what I can do, apart from what I can produce or leverage? Am I really valuable apart from my appearance, apart from the success of my children, apart from my financial security? Am I really valuable apart from my education or the friendship I have? Am I really valuable apart from my work? Um, Within religious context, this notion of performance becomes even more destructive, I think, um, because we equate God's vision of us just like that of a boss or a teacher. Just as we find ourselves thinking that we need to show how dedicated and smart we are to managers, teachers, and parents, and we begin to believe God's love for us is based upon how resistant we've been to temptation, how sold out for him we are, how spiritual we are. Um, It's interesting because the word hypocrite has such nasty connotations today. It's sort of like a curse word. If somebody calls you a hypocrite, it's it's a nasty, nasty thing. Um, Probably especially so if you're from a religious community. But it's curious because the original word simply meant actor. It's from the Greek for actor. In ancient drama, actors would wear masks to play different roles within a play. And so it's from this origin that we get the word hypocrite, a masked performer, an actor, a pretender. Outside of God's kingdom, where acceptance and affirmation can be tremendously conditional, we all put on our masks. We play different parts in the different areas of our lives, and we do it out of necessity. Um, When I was growing up, I grew up in a pretty religious subculture. I grew up sort of in a Bible church, and, you know, first week back from the hospital, I was there. My parents served in the leadership, all that kind of stuff. So maybe like some of you, maybe maybe not like some of you. But as a part of that, I grew up in a youth group, like a youth ministry. And I remember being like a sophomore in high school, like 14 or 15, and there was an older um, boy in the youth group. His name was Ian, and he um, he was the same age as my brother, so I guess he was a senior at that point. And Ian was the coolest. Ian, uh, he played on the varsity baseball team, um, super handsome guy, really likable, and was really active in the youth group. He was great. And I befriended him, or I guess he befriended me is probably how that worked. And um, I started to hang out with him and his friends, and he was older. Um, and he was just a tremendously cool person, right? I mean, the coolest guy. He had the puka shell necklace, the frosted tips. He was the greatest. Um, <laughs> some of you know what that is. Um, but the more time I spent with Ian across his different sort of segments of life, the more I realized that there was no continuity. The more I realized that among his baseball friends that we would play cards with, he was one person. And on Wednesday night youth ministry, he was another. And Sunday morning Sunday school, he was another. And dinner with his parents, he was another. And time with his girlfriend, he was another. He was a different person each and every time. And what really resonated with me about that was I was the same way. I, too, was juggling um, a lot of balls. I was spinning a lot of plates. Um, I was being a lot of people to a lot of different people. And what really struck me about Ian is he seemed to do it with such ease. He seemed to keep the plates plates spinning incessantly. He just kept them spinning. And it didn't seem to phase him at all. He seemed to kind of seamlessly navigate between these different worlds kind of taking off masks and putting them on. And I envied him. I envied him because he seemed to do it all well. Um, Now I know that that's the greatest tragedy of all. Um, And as I've 
still stayed somewhat in touch with Ian, I know that the product of that in his life, um, is, he's, he's become a person who he doesn't really know who he is, I would say. He's become so many different things to so many different people that he no longer is himself. Um, and this is, um, this is really what hypocrisy is. This is what mask wearing is. I don't think Jesus used the word hypocrite like we do today. I don't think he was trying to berate or despise people living outside of his kingdom. I think the word was used with great sadness, not as a cruel name, but as a true condition of life, a life spent pretending. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, you are not to be like the hypocrites, it isn't out of hate for that community of people. It's out of sincere love and mercy. Our God is a God of truth, and he wants no one to live a dishonest life. Jesus reminds us three times of the desperation the hypocrites face because of such lives. After all they're performing, when they receive a little bit of accolade, a little bit of acclaim, Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. That's it. That's it. The Greek language used actually conveys that sort of of a receipt being cleared. Um, They've been paid. The account is cleared out. There's nothing more there for them. And so no matter how much sacrifice or cost, um, no matter how much went into the righteousness for people to see, the reward that comes from people will only ever be a fleeting one-time payment. That's it. This performance is cyclical. It requires you to keep going and going and going. It requires you to keep on shelling it out so that you can get some more. And so Jesus is emphatic that this is the sort of desperate transaction um, that is not the way of the kingdom of God. Jesus is emphatic that instead of performance, he wants us to have intimacy. While Jesus describes how the hypocrites have publicly, publicly went about their acts of righteousness for the end of um, garnering acceptance and value from people, he calls his followers into secrecy. So publicity versus secrecy. In verse 3, Jesus says, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again in verse 6, he says, But you, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And again in verse 17, But you, right, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Throughout this passage, Jesus associates the Father with secrecy. In both verse 6 and 18, Jesus actually says the Father is in secret, and that whatever is done in secret will also be rewarded. Throughout this, um, and this is really tremendous, because while um, all of the pretenders are clamoring for attention, while they're clamoring and working so hard in public places like street corners and synagogues, um, the Father is actually just in the secret in the private, and in the hidden place. The imagery this invitation inspires is extreme intimacy, I think. Just as a husband and a wife might retreat from public eyes, from the sight of other people, into a place of of privacy to have their most honest conversation to be closest to one another, so too does the Father invite us into secrecy with him. Righteousness for the praise of other people is cluttered with expectations and questions of what other people are thinking or saying, um, but quiet and humble righteousness is, the only, um, is only with the Father. It, it's a sacred relationship. And specifically because intimacy with the Father isn't performance-based, specifically because it's completely removed from what do you look like you're doing, um, it's actually liberating too. In this secrecy, we don't have to come with pretension. We're allowed to take off our masks and stop pretending. Um, we're allowed to come with vulnerability. And so Jesus says to all who would follow him into his kingdom, He says, put away your masks and pretensions. You are welcomed and valued here, regardless of your failures, um, regardless of your poor choices. Um, Indeed, regardless of your skills and your accomplishments, regardless of your righteousness, you are welcomed here because you are loved by the king. The next contrast that Jesus is trying to bring us through is from ritual to trust. And first we'll discuss ritual. Um, The subject of ritual in this text actually moves away from the hypocrites, the pretenders, and moves towards another community, the Gentiles. Um, And it's on the topic of prayer that the righteousness of this non-Jewish community is discussed. Jesus says in verse 7, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. 
In this statement, Jesus was likely referring to practices of prayer and petition in the Greek world, in the non-Jewish Mediterranean world, um, where deities um, were sought. Um, Gentiles would open prayer to their gods with a long invocation. Uh, Maybe some of you remember reading the Odyssey in high school. The invocation to the muse starts each section of the Odyssey or the Iliad, right? It's the same thing, actually, when seeking um, one of these deities. Um, The invocation might include lots of nonsensical words, the meaningless repetition Jesus refers to. And the idea was simple. If I need something from a certain deity, I need to approach them in the proper way. I need to follow the right protocol. And after I uh, perform the correct ritual, um, I I can have a hope of my provision or concern being met. Unlike the hypocrites who are hoping to receive affirmation from other people, the Gentiles are interested in being heard. Um, They hope that their proper approach to the divine will lead to their needs being met. But as you might guess, this sort of system must have been um, intimidating in the best of times and paralyzing in the worst. In the midst of war, famine, or illness, gods could be sought, but the only hope of intervention rested in the interest or the whim of the deity. And there was no obligation that the god owed to the worshiper. There was no sort of relationship there. And so the Gentiles Jesus describes for us were perpetually in no man's land, wondering if their needs would be acknowledged, let alone met. It is no surprise then that Jesus tells his disciples to engage in prayer of, uh, and no prayer of this sort because the gods being sought after are nothing like their father in heaven. Verse 7, Jesus says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose um, that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Instead of ritual, Jesus points the disciples towards trust. This trusting relationship is most clearly shown um, by how Jesus describes God's relationship actually to the disciples. Um, Throughout this text, Jesus refers to God's relationship to the disciples as your father, your father. He says your father ten times to them. And quite unlike the deities of the world around them, the disciples' father already is aware of their needs, even before they go through the invocation, even before they approach him. Jesus goes on to teach the disciples how to pray and further reveals just how unique the relationship is to the Father. He says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's often been noted that the Lord's prayer begins simply our Father, right? The Roman Catholic Church refers to it as this, the Our Father. In contrast to the need for outlandish invocations um, and formalities, the disciples are instructed to simply remember their relationship to God as they begin prayer, that he is their Father and that they are his children. From this beginning, the disciples are taught to pray for the real needs they have each day, provision, forgiveness for sin, protection from the enemy. Jesus teaches his disciples in this invitation to daily communication, that they are free to ask for what they need, not based on any sense of performance or pretension, um, but based simply upon the way that the Father desires to relate to them. While I don't typically start my prayer times off with an invocation, um, I think it is much easier to start my times of prayer off with God um, when I've had a good day. You know, those days where you haven't lost your patience with coworkers, you haven't yelled at students, your commute back home wasn't too stressful. Um, my invocation, is a sense, in a sense, is coming to God with a stress-free attitude and a big chunk of time to pray. That's my invocation, and that's when I feel like I'm going to be best heard by God or hear best from him. This doesn't work so well in frantic moments and brief lunches. But the reality is that my father wants me to understand his concern and provision for me daily. Lately, I've been, um, I've been trying to, I guess, practice more gratitude in my times of prayer. And so instead of kind of this invocation of trying to calm down and just say, like, okay, it wasn't that bad of a day. I've tried to practice gratitude. So just going through my day and reflecting on um, what I'm thankful for in it, Um, the big things and the little things. Um, I don't think this is is another invocation because I don't need it to approach God. Um, But as I go through this process, it simply helps me remember who it is I'm talking to. Um, As I practice this discipline of gratitude, I continue to find that indeed my father does know what I need, even before I ask him. 
and that he has even been providing for it, even before I've asked him. Um, The last set of values that Jesus leads us through is self-focused righteousness versus mercy for others. As we've seen time and again in this passage, the hypocrites, the pretenders, are consumed by their desire to be seen and known. And the Gentiles, while perhaps less obsessed with the appearance, um, they're no less consumed with themselves and their own needs. For their different motivations and cultural identities, both the hypocrites and Gentiles are caught in the exact same situation. They're caught in the same struggle to find sufficiency, the sufficiency they need outside of the kingdom of God. Now, I want to say that there's actually nothing inherently wrong with being needy and desperate. Um, To be in search of what we desire most. And that's good news for us, right? In the Beatitudes, Jesus recognizes those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness and those who mourn and long for restoration in our world. He recognizes them and he promises that they will be satisfied. And he instructs his disciples to ask the Father for their daily needs to be met. To live fully in the kingdom is to get needy and desperate, actually, I think. To recognize where we are poor, and then to ask for the rich provision of our Father. But the pursuits of the Gentiles and hypocrites are for food that will not satisfy and drink that will not quench. Jesus' description of the Gentiles suggests that they will be perpetually babbling, constantly trying to get the attention of some God who might be able to help them. But this God isn't their maker, and he doesn't know what they need before they even ask. The hypocrites are preoccupied with their search for significance because the praise of others is always paid in full and yet is always somehow not enough. This is the bitter irony of self-focus, that in the pursuit of all our real needs, trying to care for ourselves and our well-being above everything else, we can actually become so turned inward that we end up dehumanizing ourselves and losing our very selves. This is the great irony Self-focus, it turns out, isn't that beneficial after all. Maybe this is part of what Jesus meant when he said, for if you try and save your life, you'll lose it. It's in this desperate kind of grabbing to save ourselves that we end up losing ourselves. But once again, uh, while Jesus reveals to us the reality of a ruined life, the reality of being consumed with ourselves, being so focused on ourselves, um, he leads us into his kingdom and his intentions for us. It is strange that in the midst of a very simple text, a very formulaic text, where Jesus repeats the same idea three times, we have a pretty long digression on the Lord's prayer and on forgiveness. Um, For almsgiving uh, to the poor, prayer and fasting, Jesus um, kind of unveils the heart motive of people. He unveils the false motive and false righteousness. He offers a better way of practicing. He says, practice this as unto God alone. Practice this privately or unto God. And he says, Um, that if you do this, if you do this unto the Father, he will reward you. And then he moves on to the next one. He does this three times. But in the section on prayer, Jesus begins to speak about forgiveness to the disciples. This is where he breaks the pattern. And as I was studying this text, it seemed really obnoxious. Um, It seemed out of place. And uh, even the book that we read actually doesn't treat this text. It takes it out of this portion. But I figured that the authority of Scripture might be worth something, I wrestled with it a little bit more. Nikki and I studied it. Um, And we realized, yeah, actually that this talk of the Lord's prayer and forgiveness is really central. It's actually the fulcrum. It's what everything turns upon, actually. Um, This is not coincidental. Instead, I believe that Jesus is adding a new righteousness to the big three of almsgiving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. These three were fundamental. Any religious um, Jewish person would have practiced these three. They would have been central to their religious identity. But Jesus is adding something else, forgiveness of other people. Among this core of how we relate to God, Jesus is now adding forgiveness. In verse 12, Jesus um, instructs the disciples. He says, uh, instructs them how to pray. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then again in verse 14, he says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Just as Jesus explained that righteousness in exchange for the acceptance of others and babbling prayer missed the Father and therefore missed the point, so too does a personal righteousness that never leads to mercy for others. Jesus, as he's done previously throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, is adding depth to what is traditionally accepted as required, as good. 
in uh, chapter 5, verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He goes on to say, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is not offering legalism for the disciples to follow, right? That's not what he's doing. He's not saying you had better forgive others or you're not getting any forgiveness from me. Instead, he is explaining that forgiveness is a part of the kingdom of God because the king is a forgiving king. All of the father's children are like him. And so if we are to give freely to the poor in love of God, if we are to pray um, and be with him in secrecy because we adore him, and if we are to fast and return to him for his own sake, then we must also forgive others, all for the love of God. Um, to be honest, um, I liked the first three more than the forgiveness one. <laughs> I was more okay with almsgiving to the poor and prayer and fasting because they're more personal, you know? You're able to control it a lot more, it seems like. Um, you know, you're able to subdue your own body. You're able to make those choices for yourself. But forgiveness, that's inherently an interpersonal. That's inherently a communal experience. Um, and that's probably why it's one of the hardest values of the kingdom of God for me. Spilling up here. Um, I grew up in a rather unstable home, particularly because of my relationship with my dad. And um, so, yes. So early on, I, I have lots of memories as a kid of hearing yelling, hearing fights, and then um, going down the stairs and going out the back door and going to a friend's house. or We had a creek by my house, so I'd kind of go play Huckleberry Finn for a while. So I have lots of memories of kind of going out the back door of life, escaping, um, keeping distance, keeping safe. And I learned pretty early on, I would say, as kids are able to do, because kids are pretty amazing, I learned early on that in order to stay safe, it was best to create barriers to those who hurt you and to never really trust them again. Keep healthy distance, keep safe, navigate the, the distance as best as you can. Um, and I'm really thankful God has brought a lot of healing um, to my family relationships. Um, God has brought a lot of healing to my relationship with my dad specifically. Uh, I'm really excited. My dad's going to probably like pray at the reception for the wedding and stuff like that. And um, my brother's going to be my best man. So that was another really broken relationship. And so I'm really excited for a lot of that. God has brought tremendous healing. He has been so faithful. Um, and yet I still find forgiveness to be the utmost challenge. Lately, I've been praying about this a lot um, and realizing that I'm really afraid of being hurt again. And so I once again maintain distance from those who are poised to hurt me. Uh, my narrative goes something like this. You're on your own. You're on your own when it comes to your hurt. You had better protect yourself. No one's looking out for you. You had better protect yourself. But it's funny because the more I talk with the Father about this, the more I hear him tell me that he is my peacemaker and my reconciler. The more I wrestle with questions of if I can forgive cruel bosses, insensitive coworkers, um, broken family members, the more I hear God tell me he is my peacemaker, he is my reconciler. When I was an enemy of the king, he didn't build up walls against me to keep me out. Like I said earlier on, the kingdom of God has no walls. It has no arbitrary lines on a map. The kingdom of God is open for business. So when I was an enemy of the king, a rebel, he didn't build up walls against me to keep me out. Instead, he drew close enough to me, close enough for me to hurt him, close enough for me to crucify him. This was how great his desire was for our peace, that our God did not stay far off, that he came and made peace with our world. And so I'm left with this question. How can I push people away and want nothing to do with them when my king came and made peace with me, when my king came and made peace with his own blood? Our God has come and made peace with us. He has forgiven our debts, and now he asks us to extend the same love, the same peace and mercy to others, not in our blood, but in his. And so I'm so tremendously struck by this. And, uh, and I think it is the core. I think Jesus is adding to this. Jesus is saying um, throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount um, how we relate to God and how we relate to other people. These, these are two sides of the same coin, that we cannot focus on one and neglect the other. That to love people without God is to fundamentally not know what it is to love people. To love God without loving people is to deny that his image is in them, right? 
And so these are two sides of the same coin. And so as, um, as I'm kind of wrapping up the talk here, I encourage you to just be thinking about that. Of those major areas, um, areas of performance, right? Um, areas of intimacy, of rich trust, of self-focus versus mercy. Where are the areas that God is calling you to a deeper descent into his kingdom, like a richer journey into his kingdom? Um, because the reality is, like, we've never arrived. I love, um, C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Great Divorce. This is a digression. This isn't in my notes. but um, So now you're in trouble because now I'm going off the notes. He, re- he writes this book called The Great Divorce, and it's, it's a novella. It's like 130 pages. You can read it in a night. Um, and it's beautiful. It's written, it's a story about, um, imagine that there's a bus that goes from hell to heaven and that anyone can take the bus. You have to journey to the bus, but anyone can get on, get on that bus and take it to heaven. And then if you want to stay in heaven, you can. Anybody who gets there can stay. It's just they have to make a choice to go deeper into heaven. And so Lewis paints this picture of heaven, the kingdom of God, um, being this beautiful place. Um, and deeper and deeper into the mountains, um, the guides of these, these people from hell, these wraiths, the guides are saying, go deeper into the mountains, go deeper into heaven, go deeper into the kingdom. And with every step, it becomes more costly, it becomes more challenging, it becomes more painful for them because these are people that have chosen to live separate from God. Um, both every step too, there's freedom. And I think that's the reality here for all of us. Um, that yes, maybe we all can kind of paraphrase this text from memory, but God is still inviting us into a deeper descent into his kingdom, a deeper ascent into his kingdom. Um, this passage was really rich. Um, actually, I had to cut out a lot, and I honestly have no idea how long I've been teaching for. It's almost noon. Wow. Um, this passage was, uh, was really rich, and I actually want to give us a few practical ways that we can be interacting uh, with these areas of intimacy, trust, and mercy. Um, first, confession. Confession. And um, confession is a phenomenal way that we can keep our hearts from arrogance and the temptation to pretend. It's more um, institutionalized and established in some Christian traditions than in like more evangelical tradition. Um, but confession is so vital. Right? In the scriptures we're told, right, confess your sins to one another and pray for healing. Um, and this is exactly what we're offered. This is exactly what our invitation is. As we see in the Lord's Prayer, as a community we're called um, to pray, forgive us our debts, right? It's this communal experience. Together, all the disciples are to pray, forgive us our debts. It's not forgive me my debts. It's together they're to do this. It's not that sin isn't personal. It's not that failure isn't personal. But it's that it's not supposed to be individual, I don't think. Not really, at least. And so I encourage us to seek those trusting and supportive relationships in this church and anywhere else, but hopefully this church. Um, trusting and supportive relationships where we can take off our masks and pursue intimacy with one another. Um, So whether it's community group or a spiritual formation group um, or just calling up somebody during a lunch break, um, this is a huge way that we can remove sort of pretension from our lives. It's a huge way that we can move ourselves past this one dimension of just church person and say real person, you know? Second, uh, take time to be still and alone with your father. I um, I love where Jesus talks about Prayer and secrecy. Um, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Um... We're invited into an intimacy with God um, that not only reveals dishonesty and keeps us from pretension, keeps us from performance, um, but it also reminds us of why God's provision and why God himself is better than performance. Right? We're, invented into, we're invited into an intimacy that um, protects us, heals us, saves us, but it also just reminds us that he's better. It just reminds us that this is the source of everything we need, that he knew what we need, needed before we ever approached him, and it's all here. Um, and if, in that, too, I'll say, for me, I struggle a lot with that sense of being so afraid of my own self-righteousness, my own false righteousness, that I'm kept from doing things. So even, like, choosing to do this talk, it was kind of like, should I really do this? Like, I don't know. Um, I'm constantly, like, obsessed with that. And that's, like, a huge struggle that I'm working through. God's really working me through. I think in the stillness and in the secret place when no one else is around, 
It's just us and our Father. We can receive the courage and the confidence to know that he's at work in us, that his desires are becoming our desires, and we're free to do what he's made us to do. Right? I think that's the only place we can get that courage and confidence. Um, and lastly, I'll say um, the third thing that I think is, is really important for us is that we search for ways to richly give to the poor. Um, it's funny because all the times I've actually heard this passage in the past, it was never like almsgiving to the poor. It was always described as kind of like giving money to the church or something. But actually, Jesus talks about here about giving to the poor. He talks about a system where the, the poor, the vulnerable of that community were cared for. Um, and I think the wonderful thing about giving to the poor, um, the wonderful gift that the poor rather can give the rich is that um, their gifts are less obvious or tangible. Um, and the re- reward must come from the father. So, for example, um, I, I spent some time with an after-school program um, over spring break because I was like helping some students on a spring break project. And uh, it was on the east side, and we spent a lot of time with kids, and they didn't really say thank you at all. They just screamed and ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, right? That's what they did as kids. Um, you can have lunch with a homeless person who you see by your work, and they'll probably just talk about themselves the whole time because probably no one's talked to them in several days. So they'll just, they'll just want to hear their own voice and talk. It's very common, I think. Um, if you're a student, right, some of you are students, you can befriend the shy kid, the weird kid, or the obnoxious kid. Um, um, they're probably poor in friendship. And so while they won't be able to help you much in the way of popularity or return much to you in that, um, there will be a rich reward there, I think. Because uh, you have the promise of being rewarded by God. He is most present in those anonymous and forgotten places, in the secret places. He sees what is done in secret love for him and others. And he will reward you. And this is the reward you want after all. Um, So let me just close this in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you move us past performance. Father God, we thank you um, that to enter into your kingdom actually requires us take off our masks and show, us, show you our real face, the face that you gave us. And so God, we thank you so much um, that your kingdom, your kingdom is the only place where we can break through, break free of these old ways of living. We thank you that these old ways of living aren't the only way to live. The contrary to what we're told when people say that's just the world, that's just the way it is, that's not true. There actually is another way. There is another world. There's another kingdom, and it's yours. And so, God, I just thank you for your invitation here, and I thank you for the mercy in it. I thank you, God, that you do not instate another legalism for us to follow, but you come and you lead us into everlasting life. So, Jesus, I thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, and I thank you, Jesus, that you weren't joking around, um, that even when you use hyperbole and metaphor, you're being truthful, you're being serious. I thank you, God, that the Sermon on the Mount has mobilized the church in the past to do radical, crazy, stupid things. And I thank you, Lord God, that it's because people took it seriously. And so, God, would you give us the grace and the courage to take you seriously, to take your word seriously, um, that in the secret place you will reward us, God, that in giving we will be uh, rewarded. Lord God, would you set us free? Um, Would you set us free from the old ways that would challenge your kingdom? We just pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. And so, like, I guess traditionally at the end of a service, I don't really know, I didn't talk with Claire and Randy about this, but if you, um, you want to receive prayer for something uh, that was talked about in the message, um, some area that's really oppressive and just it was revealed to you, or maybe, I don't know, just something happened this week and you just need prayer, um, feel free to come forward. I know there will be a lot of people standing up here. I'm happy to pray with you and just share that burden with you. So thanks so much.